On July of 2005, an unusual event in Istanbul, Turkey, made the headlines around the globe. 450 Turkish sheep leap to their deaths. The surprising occurrence was described by the stunned shepherds this way. While we left the herd to graze for breakfast, the first sheep jumped to its death, attempting to jump across a ravine. Then all of the sheep in the fold, nearly 1,500 sheep, followed one another, leaping off the same cliff. In the end, 450 sheep lie dead at the bottom of the cliff. All 1,500 of the sheep on top of one another in a billowy white pile. Sorry, it's like humorous, but also kind of morbid. Uh, Those who jumped later were saved as the pile got higher and higher, and the fall was more cushioned by the sheep, sheep's wool. There's nothing we can do. They're all wasted, said Nevzet Bayahan, a member of one of the 26 families whose sheep were grazing together in the herd. Every family had an average of 20 sheep, another villager said. But now we only have few sheep left. It's going to be very hard for us. Someone, I forgot, said it, but said it wisely and humorously, that if there is any certain evidence that evolution is false, sheep are one of those definite proofs against the theory of evolution and its idea of survival of the fittest. Because among the animal kingdom, sheep seem to have come out on the short end of the stick. After centuries of its existence, sheep can do very little for themselves. They can't find their own food. They can't lead themselves to water. They can't make themselves lie down. They just stand there until they get tired and they just collapse. Sheep are also given to listless wandering. As creatures of habit, they will follow paths through desolate places, even though not far away, uh, when there's excellent forage right near them. There are even counts, accounts of sheep walking into open fire. Shepherds confirm that they are timid and also at the same time stubborn. They are frightened by most uh, ridiculous things, and other times, nothing can move them. And of all the animals subject to husbandry, care, and cultivation, shepherds claim that they take the most work. Sheep are some of the most helpless, defenseless, and possibly some of the most dumbest animals that ever exist. And of all the animals that the Bible can reference, sheep are the primary portrayal of God's people all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, yes, you and me, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John in our series, In the Beginning Was the Word, and this fall, we are covering the seven I Am sayings of Jesus and its relevant passages. Just as the purpose of this Gospel by the Apostle John is clearly stated in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, which says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What was written in John's gospel were to reveal who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God, in order that you and I may believe and have life in him. And today in our passage of all the sayings and descriptions we ascribe to our Savior Jesus, the fourth I am saying, I am the good shepherd, is perhaps the most popular and the most well-known and well-loved of all the I am statements. I am the good shepherd. 
And our passage this afternoon teaches us just why Jesus is the good shepherd. Such a characterization is suitable for him alone. He fitly wears the name. He aptly holds, upholds the claim, I am the good shepherd. So from John chapter 10, verses 11 through 40, I want us to consider four reasons why Jesus is indeed the good shepherd. Four reasons why Jesus is the good shepherd. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, from verses 11 to 15, let's consider the shepherd's love. From verses 16 through 21, let's consider the good shepherd's purpose. From verses 23 to 29, let's consider the good shepherd's commitment. And finally, from verses 30 to 40, the good shepherd's authority. Love, purpose, commitment, and authority. And from this exposition of God's word, I pray that you would be reminded that no matter how helpless or defenseless you feel in the trying circumstances of your life, that Jesus is indeed the good shepherd who knows you and loves you. And I pray that if there is anyone here this afternoon who does not know Jesus as the good shepherd, that you would hear his voice and know his love and care for you. So if you have your Bibles, look with me now to John chapter 10, verses 11 through 40 in your Bibles and follow along as I read and preach. And please keep your Bibles open for the entire duration of the message so you know that this is God's word and not man's word. If you are new to the Bible, the Gospel of John is the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about two-thirds into the Bible from the front. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 40. It says this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd." For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up the stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you 
but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. We'll just stop there. Why is Jesus the good shepherd? Let's consider first the good shepherd's love. Look with me to verses, uh, verse 12 again, which says this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The passage, of course, is a continuing discourse following the account of Jesus healing the man born blind in John chapter 9. The Pharisees show themselves to be so into themselves, Jesus accuses them as false shepherds, as thieves and robbers who harm God's sheep and dishonors God. In the passage we studied two weeks ago from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And in contrast to those wicked shepherds who took advantage of the sheep, who were careless about the sheep, who left alone their own to their demise, the sheep were hungry, weak, injured, and scattered. Jesus, on the other hand, is presented to us as the good shepherd. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters. He is not a good shepherd. He is not some good shepherd, not merely a decent shepherd, not just a hard-working, sometimes-ite shepherd. He is the good shepherd. Amen? Whether you know it, believe it, or have experienced it, he is the definitive description of the ultimate shepherd. Jesus didn't want you to miss his claim. And if you know him as he is, we can take no offense because it's entirely true. He is, in fact, the good shepherd. Do you know how it repeats right there in that first verse? I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd. The definite article and the repetition emphasizes the reality and validity of such a grand claim. And then it's repeated a third time in verse 14, almost as bookended of this description, which I'll share with you why in just a few seconds, but stay with me on this idea, on this truth, this monumental name, Jesus is the good shepherd. The word good, which is translated from the Greek, doesn't do justice in English, but it's more than describing something that is just okay. As in, how's your day? Ah, uh, good. How was lunch? Ah, uh, good. As if there are no other words to describe something slightly above average. Good here means so much more, brothers and sisters. Good means here morally and intrinsically. Good as in beautiful and glorious. Spurgeon rightly caught the picture of this claim. And he quotes this. He says this. There is more in Jesus, the good shepherd, than you can pack away in a shepherd. He is the good, the great, the chief shepherd, but he is so much more. Emblems to set him forth may be multiplied as the drops of the morning, but the whole multitude will fail to reflect all his brightness. Creation is too small a frame in which to hang his likeness. Human thought is too contracted. Human speech too feeble to set him forth to the full. He is inconceivably above our conceptions, unutterably above our utterances. Such is the shepherd we worship this afternoon. Hallelujah. He is altogether lovely and beautiful and glorious. Amen? But why is he so wonderful? 
Why is this Jesus that we worship right now so good? The following phrase of verse 11 is the answer. He lays down his life for the sheep. Brothers and sisters, how do you know Jesus loves you? That Jesus won't give up on you. That Jesus' love is greater. That Jesus' love is beyond and better than any earthly or any other loves of this world. Look to the cross because he gave up his life for you. He died for you. That is his claim. He laid down his life for the sheep. Brothers and sisters, don't think this is a normal occurrence. Don't think that this is even a typical occurrence. As I shared with you about the Turkish shepherds, even at the cost of their own welfares and livelihood, shepherds don't normally do this, right? Lay down their lives for the sheep. Don't get caught up in the familiarity of this illustration to think that this is common. The shepherd usually, typically, may cut his losses, may count the cost, but the shepherd rarely lays down his own life for some dumb animals. Do you get the point? Except one. That's the point. In verses 12 through 13, Jesus lays out the unusual and assumed practice, the typical practice of a normal shepherd or somebody who pretends to be a shepherd. Verses 12 to 13, which says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But in contrast, Jesus says, in verse, again, in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. And then a seemingly strange or a difficult to understand initially verse that follows, verse 15, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. What does this mean? It means just as the Father and the Son, Jesus, are intimately united in the Trinity, As our God, the God of the Bible, is one in nature and essence, yet distinct in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Jesus was claiming his heart, his reason, his will for the sheep was one with the Father. Jesus laying down his life for the sheep wasn't just Jesus' idea, a merely a heroic act. It was God's divine plan. John later explains it more specifically. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is indeed the good shepherd because he laid down his life for the sheep. He lays it down because it is God's will and plan because he loves the sheep. Brothers and sisters, are you doubtful today or any other day that the God of the universe, that creator of all things loves you, that Jesus, the good shepherd, is perhaps not so good to you? That is the stupidest thing you could think. Surely you can feel that way I'm not illegitimizing what you may feel at times when difficulties come your way. I'm not even saying you can have doubts. You're not allowed to have doubts about God's love for you. But notice this. Feelings come and go. The truth, the truth remains and endures and perseveres. Why? Because it is the truth. And what I'm telling you now through this word, Jesus loves you deeply. Jesus laid down his life for you sacrificially. He protects you. He watches over you. He fights for you. You thought I missed it in verse 14, didn't you? The good shepherd says, I know my own, and my own know me. What a contrast for those who falsely claim to know Jesus at the end of days. When Jesus responds to those false professors of faith in Matthew 7, 23, depart from me, I never knew you. But to those who are his, Jesus says, I know you, and you know me. 
If you're a Christian here this afternoon, and from the trials and hardships that came your way, some of you are experiencing difficult circumstances. You are or have doubted that Jesus, the Son of God, loves you. I pray that these words will remind you today that his claim, I am the good shepherd, rings out loud to you when he says to you, when he is saying to you right now, I love you, I know you, and you know me, so trust me, follow me, look to me. And just one more brief thought, as the text will proportionately allow, Jesus says, I lay down my life, for who? For the sheep, not for doctrine's sake, not to prove anything, not to merit any title or ascertain any credential. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Not for everyone, but for the sheep. Not for those who are not of the sheep, but for the sheep. We can spend a whole sermon on those three words, for the sheep. But here are some quick thoughts. Jesus is the good shepherd because just as God created the world to be good for us, Read the Genesis account. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. There is a reason why Jesus had to die for the sheep. And it's not merely because for love. Listen to me carefully. It's not merely for love as the liberal theologians who deny penal substitutionary atonement claim that Jesus' death on the cross was a divine and ultimate act of love. There's so much more to the goodness of God than that. Which leads us to our second point. Why Jesus is the good shepherd. Let's consider the good shepherd's purpose. Verses 16 through 21. Look with me to verses 16 through 18. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. In verse 16, Jesus is speaking about the Gentiles when he refers to the sheep that are not of this fold. So every single person in this room, you and me, Jesus considered us. This fold is referring to the Jews. Scripture shows us from the very beginning, since God is the creator of all mankind, since God called Abraham out of paganism to be the father of many nations, although God's plan of redemption through Christ was initially carried out through the Jews in order to preserve the messianic lineage, his salvation would be granted to people of every nation, every tribe and people and language. And just as it was prophesied in Ezekiel 34, that God himself will search for his sheep and will seek them out in Ezekiel 34, 11. And he says, I will feed them to good pastures. And he says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down. And as he will seek the lost and bring them back, the strayed, and will bind up the injured, and will strengthen the weak. So here in John 10 is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy that God himself will be the shepherd. But also in Ezekiel 34, 23, which says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. So the tension that all the Jews knew, which was all so familiar to to that culture, to that time, how God himself will be the shepherd, and how God's prince David will be the shepherd, how as according to the end of verse 16, so there will be one flock, one shepherd, All of that comes together. All of that is fulfilled in Jesus, the new and greater 
David, who says it down in verse 30, I and the Father are one. But we haven't answered yet why the good shepherd's sacrificial death is more than just mere love, right? Greater than any love, because verse 17 explains, listen carefully, the scripture's most deep, mysterious, and profound love, which says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. For what reason? For the reason for all of God's sheep to be gathered. For the reason for all of God's prophecies and promises to be fulfilled. For the reason for all of God's sheep to not merely feel loved, but for our atonement, for our cleansing, for our forgiveness of sins. But not only that, there's more. The reason why the Father loves the Son is because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Listen carefully. Jesus' death wasn't the purpose of his mission. Jesus' death and resurrection is coming a little bit closer, but there's more. Jesus' death and resurrection was for the reason that the scattered, weak, injured, straying sheep of God will be gathered as one flock under one shepherd. Because why? Death wasn't the end. Resurrection for new life, abundant life for oneness was the end goal. More explicitly, Jesus came so that we may be one with him in new life. That's why Jesus says the Father loves him. That's why Isaiah 53.10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, make his life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. Brothers and sisters, are you getting this? It was the will of the Lord to kill his son. Why? Because death wasn't the end. Resurrection and new life and oneness with him for all of his people, all of his children, all of his sheep. That was the end goal. Because Jesus' substitute death would be the only way. The son of God himself plunging into the cliff to his own death would be the only way sin, sickened sheep would be saved. Jesus says in verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. We see that this has been, in fact, the purpose of God all along. Man did not thwart God's redemption plan by killing him on the cross. It was God's plan all along. Jesus' death and resurrection was God's plan from the very beginning for us to know his great love. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the best news you will ever hear, the news that you and I need to hear every single day, the news of our salvation in Christ alone, that God who is holy created the world in love for his glory and our pleasure, but man having been tempted by Satan chose to distrust and rebel against him, choosing to be our own gods. And our consequences were clear, weren't they? Because we were marred by sin. We continually chose sin deliberately disobeying God's commands. We were separated from God like lost sheep, scattered, weak, broken, and hungry, helpless, defenseless, and incapable of saving ourselves. No way, no truth, no life apart from God because of our own choosing. And we were destined to face the punishment of our sins just as a guilty criminal would face the sentence of his crimes, the wrath of God, endless conscious punishment in hell. But hear these glorious words, but... God had a plan from the very beginning to save a people, to forgive their sins, 
and to restore a right relationship with them, to unite his people once again with himself, to show his great love. Through Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, who is truly God and truly man, who is the full and final word, the fulfillment of all prophecies and promises of God, his sinless substitute life, his substitute death on the cross, paid for the punishment of all of our sins, past, present, and future. Hallelujah. And at the cross, our unrighteousness was placed on him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming cursed for us, according to Galatians 3.13. But his death wasn't the end of the story, was it? Jesus took up his life again on the third day, which shouldn't have been a surprise for anyone because he spoke of it so many times. Yet it's still incredible, isn't it? Yet it's still amazing at the thought, isn't it? Yet so true, so evident which is how three short years of Jesus' earthly ministry continued on from A.D. 33 and grew into the most significant, influential faith religion in the history of mankind, which is the reason why followers of Jesus all over the world have been gathering together for over 2,000 years since Jesus got up from the grave, which is the reason why persecution, imprisonment, censures, bannings, burnings, and shootings cannot and will not stop the kingdom of God's advance. So if you are here and you are not a Christian, you are not a follower of Christ, or if you are not sure that you are, we're so glad that you're here. You are welcome here today and every other Sunday. But if I can ask you a question, what do you do about your sins? What do you do about your guilt and shame? You can ignore it. You can deny it. You can minimize it. But what will you do with the agony of the lack of peace and emptiness and lifelessness you feel. You can continue to medicate and suppress with whatever earthly pleasure that seems to be so very fleeting, but how long will that last? Friend, if you're not a Christian, Jesus is calling on you today. He says, I know my own and my own know me. So if you hear his voice this afternoon, this moment, answer the call. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved is a promise direct from Scripture. Look around you, brothers and sisters. Friend, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Every single one of us who claim to be Christians here experienced the same lostness before Jesus found us and called us. And we all testify, I was blind, but now, because of Christ, I see. So friend, if you're not a Christian, repent of your sins. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. Trust in the good shepherd with your life today and forevermore. Talk to me or Jeremy at the doors at the end of service or talk to somebody smiling next to you. Don't leave this place today without letting someone know that you want to follow Jesus. And brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know Jesus died for you and rose again for you so that you can live? Do you know that Jesus died and rose again for you so that you can be one with him, so you can have peace, so you can have joy, and you can have hope? How are you living your life today? Do you really understand Jesus died and rose again for you for abundant life, for amazing life? And how are you doing bringing those who are not in this fold to the good shepherd? How long has it been since you prayed for an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus? Have you grown so used to not sharing the gospel, so cold to it, so numb to it? You spend so much time with your non-Christian friends, family members, and coworkers, yet not one conversation about the gospel, not one attempt, not one burden. Brothers and sisters, Jesus reminds us of the urgency. Did you see that? Did you catch that? I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. 
So if you're a Christian here today and haven't shared the gospel in a very long time, will you pray? Will you preach? Will you proclaim? Why is Jesus the good shepherd? Here's more good news. Let's consider point number three, the good shepherd's commitment. The good shepherd's commitment. Verses 22 to 30. Uh, Those verses says this. At the time of the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. There's a lot of context here to explain, but I'm going to keep it brief and get to the main point of the verses. And as I study these verses, these verses are like well-packaged gifts that keeps on giving. But before we get to the main point of these verses, I can't ignore the author's progression of the narrative. So three months or so go by. Now it's December, it's winter time, and it's the Feast of Dedications or the Feast of Lights or what we may commonly know today as Hanukkah. It wasn't an authorized feast in the Hebrew scriptures, yet it was one of the newest feasts which was culturally significant and widely celebrated, as you know, even today. You see, around 175 BC, a Greek Hellenist king of the Seleucid Empire named Antichicus came to rule over the area and attempted to mix Hebrew and Greek culture. And in the process, he desecrated the temple. He forced pork, which was considered unclean, uh, down the priest's throats. He turned the chambers of the temple into a brothel and converted the altar meant for burnt offerings to God to an altar of Zeus. But Judas Maccabeus, a Jewish priest, fought against this emperor and defeated him, and he led the people of Israel to cleanse the temple and consecrate it. So the author John, in pointing out how Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon, was in a way to signify how Jesus, the Messiah, who is often pointed to in the scriptures as the new and greater temple, has come to surpass and fulfill this feast of dedication by his death and resurrection. But again, I want to get to the main point of what is more clearly shown in these verses. So look at verse 24, which says, while Jesus was walking in the temple, the Jews gathered around him, almost encircling him as to entrap him, and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. (laughs) Isn't this question so funny? By this point, Jesus has through so many works, in so many words, showed them and told them who he is and what he came to do. Yet they are so blind and they are so deaf. So Jesus repeats a familiar rebuke. Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You don't hear. You don't believe. You don't see because you are not my sheep because my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So brothers and sisters, Jesus, his sheep, hear, know, and follow him. They didn't, and it was clear what they were not. But the gift that keeps on giving in these verses is in verse 28. Not only did Jesus, the good shepherd, because he loves his sheep, he lays down his life for the sheep, because his death was so that he would rise again, so that his sheep may live, that we may have new life. Furthermore, there's much more. Jesus is the good shepherd, 
because in verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Brothers and sisters, the fact of the matter is, wouldn't it have been enough that we were forgiven of our sins? Wouldn't it have been enough that we attained his righteousness and live a peaceful life here on earth? Peace with God, peace with men, peace with ourselves. Yet, we are given eternal life. We are given eternal hope. Not only that, we are given security. They will never perish. Not only that, we are given a promise of comfort and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So be reminded when the troubles of our life come our way, when the enemy of our souls come choking life and robbing joy from us, here is an ultimate promise we can cling to. He will hold us fast. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Brothers and sisters, it is not our grip of God. It is his hold on us that we will never be left behind. It isn't like Rose and Jack in the movie Titanic. I'll never let go. I'll never let go. And then, oops, let go. Oh, I meant never let go in my heart. It's not like that. His hold will hold us fast to the end. As the words of our, one of our favorite hymns says, he'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Amen? And we can be sure this promise is certain, brothers and sisters, because in verse 29, 30 says, my father who has given them to me, who is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. I and the father are one. Jesus says, in other words, it is God's will. God who is greater than all. He also holds us fast. On the one hand, Jesus holds you. On the other hand, the Father, God, holds you. He will keep us to the end. You won't be able to let go, even if you try, once God takes a hold of us. Jesus, the good shepherd, is who he is because he is committed to his sheep to the end. He will persevere us to glory, to eternity. Amen? Finally, let's consider the good shepherd's authority from verses 31 through 40. Look at the final verses, 31 through 36, real quick again. It says this, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he call them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? These verses are pretty self-explanatory, so I won't spend too much time on it here. But basically, despite all the evidences Jesus showed them through the signs, through the numerous ways Jesus taught his sayings uh, consistently, right? Jesus continued to show himself to be more than a mere man, more than a regular rabbi, more than a powerful prophet. Yet they accused Jesus of blasphemy, right? So these verses are for anyone who are thinking, oh yeah, I can kind of see why the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of blasphemy because his claims are ridiculous. He was claiming to be God. Maybe you feel somewhat sympathetic to the Pharisees. 
okay? Uh, Maybe reading scripture not so carefully might have caused you to think Jesus wasn't explicit enough. Why didn't Jesus come out and say it clearly? Why was Jesus being evasive by hiding away when they tried to arrest him, doing strange things that were inconsistent, like when uh, the brother said, are you going to go to the feast? And Jesus said, I'm not going to go to the feast, and then he does later. Well, I hope our studies through the past weeks help you understand that those assumptions, those accusations were not true at all, that Jesus was very clear, very transparent, very explicit, very consistent, very open, very direct time and time and time. Again, Jesus never evaded anything or anyone. He was never fearful. Jesus was clear to who he was and what his mission was. What Jesus was saying would have been blasphemous, would have been blasphemous if he didn't back it up with his works. That's why the man said of him in John 9, 33, if this man were not from God, he could not do that. That's why the people in the crowd say of him in John 10, 21, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Not only that, Jesus says in John 5, verses 30 through 46, John the Baptist testifies of me. The father testifies of me. The scriptures testifies of me. My works testifies of me. Jesus could not have been more plain. Basically, Jesus destroyed and refuted against every single one of their arguments and showed them how ignorant they were of their own scriptures, the very thing which they propped themselves up with regarding their positions as Pharisees. That's verse 34, isn't it? Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. That phrase in verse 34, Jesus was referencing from Psalm 82 verse 6. The psalmist refers to the judges in Israel in the Old Testament scripture, gods, the sons of the Most High. Now, I don't have time to get into the nuts and bolts of what this verse means. Psalm 82, 6, you could write it down and examine it later. But Jesus is bringing up simply an instance in scripture, such language used to describe God's anointed. So look at verse 35 to 36 again. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into this world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? Of course, Jesus is greater than any earthly judge. He is the only true son of God. Jesus was not guilty of blasphemy because what he said was in fact true. Verses 37 through 38 says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus was the true and final word of the Father. And what he was saying in these verses was, even if you do not believe in me and my claims, you as the teachers of the law should believe in the words of God. But you don't. You don't even see the works of the Father even before your very eyes. If you did, you would see that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What sobering words, isn't it, for you and me? For so many who claim to know and believe in God, yet they don't see Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is teaching us what they believe isn't truly God. They don't know God. They don't serve God. They serve themselves because there is only one true God. But again, in verse 39, that Jesus was in control, that he was the authority, is clearly stated, right? Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus didn't need to hide or escape through a secret alleyway, through a back door. Jesus is the authority. His time had not yet come. A criminal hides in the dark, 
doesn't expose himself in the public. Jesus' ministry was public. He called his sheep publicly. Jesus is the good shepherd who loves, who had a purpose, who was committed, who had authority over his sheep. And he does all these things in all these ways. Love you, calls you, committed to you, and is king over you and me today. And that's why he is worthy of our worship as the good shepherd. Let's pray.